Well, good morning, everyone. I'm David. Wasn't that great? Hey, can we smash the heart button in the chat box? Just thanking all the teachers for all their work putting on current kids camp this week and saying a way to go to all the kids joining us today. Can we also thank Christina Slaybaugh, our current kids director, for putting this on for us? Uh, we're just so grateful that we were able to do this, even in the midst of shelter in the place, to do this virtually, to have something for our kids. And our prayers that this would this this week will have planted seeds in uh, many of these kids' lives in terms of their relationship with God. Uh, let's start with prayer, thanking God for this past week and the current kids camp, and then and then asking Him to uh, lead us in our times we look at His Word. Uh, Father, thank you so much for the teachers who sacrificed time to serve our, our little ones and the many who are not a part of Current but were able to join us. Uh, thank you for each of these little ones that you've entrusted to our care, uh, either on the, on the long-going basis or just visiting this, this last week. Lord, would you bless them and would you bless their relationship with you? Uh, thank you that as a church, we've had opportunities to find ways to serve you and serve one another, even in the midst of shelter in place. And Father, as we turn now to your word, would you please give us your spirit to understand what you have before us? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all love a good story. And if you've been around current for any length of time, you know I, know, I love Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I just, I'm reading it right now with my son, Caleb. We've been going through it for the past year or so. I think we're, we're on the two towers, which including The Hobbit, we're getting towards the last book of the series. We're almost there. Uh, but there's a reason why it's a classic favorite for so many people. It seems to me, uh, it's not just because Tolkien has this really good ability at, at creating this beautiful world or developing intriguing characters or telling an epic quest of a tale. I think the reason why so many love it, love it uh, deep down is because it's a story that we all long for, and a story we all long to be a part of. It's the story of good versus evil, and how each and every character who opted into it got the chance to play a very unique and critical role in bringing about good winning the day in the end. Uh, each and every character find, finds that it's, it's a really hard story to be a part of. I mean, not, not necessarily easy, that's to say. Uh, there's, there's plenty of times where each and every one of the characters second guesses their involvement in the whole thing. And some of them sadly don't make it to the very end. And yet, each and every one of the characters that chose to be a part of this great adventure uh, not only at some point looks back and says, man, I'm so happy we got to be a part of this, but looks back at some point and, and is amazed that they got to be a part of something so much bigger than themselves. And, that's how, that, and, and that how, in some way, despite the odds, and despite their own deep character flaws, everything was weaved together for good to win in the end. Uh, we love stories like this because, I, because it seems to me these are all things that we long for. Purpose, meaning, the chance to be a part of something far bigger than ourselves. Well, this is God's invitation to you and to me. This is what the book of Esther teaches us, that God invites us into a far bigger story than even our own. For Esther, it was the saving of her people, for us, it's joining God in the work of redemption and bringing about the renewal of all things. Physically, relationally, 
bringing healing and restoration where there's brokenness and pain. Socially, seeking justice and the betterment of society, and most importantly, spiritually, sharing God's message of hope, love, and eternal life in Jesus Christ. We might not feel up to the task, but God gives us each task and the power to do it, no matter who we are or what season of life we're in. Uh, Young or old, male or female, uh, rich or poor, we all have assignments to play that are incredibly important. God gives our lives incredible meaning, and really there's no other higher calling because this is the calling to live for things that will last forever, things that will never fade. God gives us assignments. He gives us rules to play. But what we're going to see here in chapter 4, which to me really is the heart of the book of Esther, is this question. When the time comes, will we act? Will we act decisively to love, to serve, to bless others, even at risk or cost to ourselves. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Esther chapter 4. We'll read it in a minute here. But real quickly, to recap events uh, since we've been, we've been out of the book of Esther for the last few weeks. In chapter 1, we see King Xerxes, the Persian king, throwing this elaborate, huge 180-day festival slash party. And really, he's just celebrating all his success and uh, what he's been able to accomplish, his wealth, uh, how he had come to rule the largest empire the world had known to that time. Well, in a drunken stupor, he summoned Queen Vashti to display herself in an immodest way before all the masses, and she refused to come. Well, that didn't sit well with this very insecure king, so he deposed of her. And at the council of his advisors, he He sent emissaries out to collect women from all the provinces, uh, beautiful women to to bring them and place them in his harem as concubine so that out of the many, Josephus, the historian, tells us there's there's 400 that he he rounded up at this time, that out of the many, he would select one to replace Vashti as queen. Well, Esther, an orphan Jew, was one of these women taken as a concubine. Uh, Mordecai, Esther's relative and caregiver, did his best to be near her during this whole ordeal. Obviously, he couldn't have direct contact with her once she was taken away from him. So he would place himself in the royal courts as best he could and as much as he could in order to be close to her. And he warned her never to let let it be known that she was a Jew for fear of her life. Well, Esther won the favor of many, including the king, and was ultimately selected as queen to replace Vashti. About the same time, there was this guy named Haman, uh, an Agagite, uh, which is important to know because the Agagites earlier in the Bible are, are described as the sworn enemies of the Jews. Uh, he was placed into a very high-level position of authority, promoted basically to become the right-hand man of King Xerxes. Well, uh, because he's an Agagite, because they, these guys just didn't uh, detested the Jews, it's no wonder that when there was an edict passed for all to bow down to uh, Haman, that, Morde- that when Mordecai refused... Haman was really upset by this. In fact, he looked for a way not only to kill Mordecai as a result, but for a way to kill all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. So the lot was cast and fell on the month of Adar, which was many months out from that time, for the time in which all the Jews would be killed. 
In chapter 3, Haman takes this plan to King Xerxes, and King Xerxes uh, just goes along with it, puts a signet ring behind it, and puts it into law. That's uh, all the events up to chapter 4, which is where we pick up now again, which to me seems to be the heart of the book. Let's read Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been of, of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told her told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to, to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family, and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instruction. God gives each of us assignments or roles in his plan to redeem, to bring about the renewal of all things. First, let's consider Mordecai's role, which he really fills the role of the supporting role. Uh, for, for that is what Mordecai is here, right? He doesn't have the position of power or influence to affect events in any direct way here, but he does recognize that he can play a critical role in empowering and supporting Esther who very well can play a direct role in these events. So let's look at the ways in which Mordecai embraces his supporting role. First, we see in verse 1 that he mourns and he raises awareness. He puts on sackcloth, goes out mourning and, and weeping. You know, it's really interesting about this. Of course, he's, he's mourning because it's just, it's just sad and in and of it himself. But this is also a way for him to get the attention of Esther, who it's worth mentioning he didn't have speed dial access to in those days. 
He couldn't just get a hold of her. He could only be out in the royal court in hopes that he might talk to one of her attendants and get word to her. So he did his best to raise awareness, to sound the alarm. <clears throat> in many ways, uh, people are protesting right now with a similar thought in mind. At its core, good protesting is to raise awareness, to wave a flag, as it were, to get the attention of those in power who have the influence to bring about change, to take notice and take steps towards change. So first of all, he mourns and he raises awareness. But second of all, we see in verse 7, Mordecai informs when he tells Esther at first, it seems like Esther boxed at the noose. I mean, it's a lot for her to take in, trying to understand the destruction and annihilation of her people. So when she boxed and she hesitates, Mordecai is very careful to inform her and get her properly aware of all the details and information. Uh, look, at, look at verse 7. It says he shares the exact amount of money that Haman promised to the treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And then in verse 8, it says he also gave a copy of the text of the edict for Esther to look at herself. So he, so he informs. We also see in verse 8 that he exhorts Esther. It says that he gave instructions to Esther to go to the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Which, let's just stop and consider this for a minute. I mean, if we were reading this real quickly, not giving much thought to it, we might think that Mordecai was being quite flippant about it, or at least flippant with Esther's life. He no doubt knew the risk that this would bring to Esther, and he's like, you just need to go do this. Boy, for, for, for Esther, of course, that was a big risk, but this was also a sacrifice on the part of Mordecai. Why? Because he loved Esther to death. Everything in the text leading up to this chapter shows that Mordecai loved Esther deeply like a child. And so for him to suggest this to her, he had said to her multiple times, be, be sure not to say that you're a Jew because it could put your life in danger. He didn't want her life in danger. Yet here he's saying, you know what? This is the time that you need to even consider. He exhorts her, even as it's hard for him. There's a weight for him a part of this. And then if you look at verse 17, uh, we see he, he loyally executes uh, what Esther puts in front of him. When, when she does come to the place where she agrees that this is something God is calling her into, she asks Mordecai to gather the people, round them up to fast and pray. And, and Mordecai is steadfast by her side, carrying this out for her. Why is Mordecai doing all of these things? Well, if you look at verses 13 and 14, we see that he recognized that God is probably behind all the events that have taken place up to this point, including Esther coming to a position of power and influence and seeing his part as a supporting actor to support her in the midst of all of this. A and a time had come, he sees, for that to be put even at risk or to come at cost to them, for them to act and to act decisively. Uh, you and I will have times that come that we need to play a part as a supporting actor in, this, in the supporting role. Uh, there's times where we're going to have to be Mordecai to the Esthers in our lives. Uh, you're going to not always be the leading player. 
You're not always gonna be the person in, in an immediate position of influence or power or, or a place where you're able to bring about change, but your friend or your spouse or your coworker or boss will be in a place like that and you will be in a place or may perhaps are right now that you can play a supporting role to help them. And it's important for us to consider this because that supporting role can be and is often absolutely critical to God's plan in their lives and, and, and through their lives. In fact, it may very well be more critical for you and me to play a supporting role than any leading role we may or may never have. The reason why I think this is important for us to consider is because we live here in the Silicon Valley with this very strong entrepreneurial spirit. So many of us feel like we need to be the leaders. We gotta be the lead person driving things, playing the, the lead role. And that's not to knock that. We need, we need leaders. But I think what can happen if we're not careful is we might underestimate or miss the importance of the supporting role. We need to understand and have eyes for the supporting role, understanding its critical importance. I mentioned earlier that I really like uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. He was once asked by a fan who he thought to be the most important character in the whole story, which no doubt this person asking this question was thinking it had to have either been like, I don't know, Frodo or Gandalf or Aragorn. If you know the story, Frodo was the ring bearer, you know, the one who physically took the ring to Mount Doom to see to its destruction. That's a pretty critical role. Or maybe Gandalf, the mastermind wizard who was just there anticipating events, playing chess on the chessboard, moving the pieces around, protecting all the group. Uh, he obviously played a pretty critical role. Or maybe it was Aragorn, the, the returning king, who, who had the charisma and leadership skills, not to only to lead a ragtag group of very strong personalities, but, but the ability to lead entire people groups skillfully and lovingly. Certainly it was one of those characters who, who was the, the chief of heroes. But Tolkien actually came back and said it's, it wasn't any of those three characters. And he also didn't cop out and say, you know what, all of them were the most important character. He actually gave a real solid answer, even if it was surprising. He said the chief of heroes was Samwise Gamgee. Some of you are like, who? Samwise Gamgee, the, the humble hobbit companion to Frodo. Uh, you know, Sam, when you read about him, he's just this awkward character, sometimes bringing awkward comedic relief. And yet, he is fiercely loyal to Frodo throughout the whole story. In fact, with that in mind, as Caleb and I have been rereading the story, I've been paying more close attention to Sam, and it's absolutely clear. He, he undoubtedly could be the chief of heroes. I mean, there's any number of times, I can't go into the examples now, but there's any number of times where if not for Sam, the whole quest would have fallen apart. Any number of times. Samwise Gamgee to Tolkien was the chief of heroes, not because he was the leading role, but actually because he was the supporting role. Or let's think of it this way. I tend to think, I mean, who knows here, but I tend to think when we get to the next life and we see whom God honors in different ways, uh, you know, many of us think, oh, it's gonna be these big named people throughout history, historic figures who did this and this, missionary, whatever it might be. I tend to think that we're gonna see a lot of people honored in heaven that were the supporting role that we would just never would have otherwise known or even known to look for. People behind some of these big leading figures or people just we otherwise just would have never been aware of. 
God cares a lot about the critical role, the supporting role. Mordecai plays an absolutely critical role. If he didn't support Esther in this, if he didn't urge her, encourage her, uh, execute what she thought, none of this would have happened, humanly speaking. And so it's incredibly important for us to think about supporting roles. That's the question I ask you today. It's a question I'm asking myself today from this text is, do you have the eyes for the supporting role or roles that God might be calling you into? And then do you have the humility to enter into that and carry it out? Uh, recently, Cindy and I finished up a cohort uh, planting, a uh, group of uh, planting pastors uh, in the Bay Area with City to City. And there's this new court cohort coming out of it, kind of this new birth of an idea of starting a new group that's going to support church planning. It's really exciting what, was, uh, um, what could come out of this in terms of uh, supporting and coming alongside and partnering with future church plants, church startups in the Bay Area. Well, Cindy was asked uh, very honorably to be a part of their board. And that's really exciting. I wasn't asked to be a part of that board. I'm the one who grew up a kid of church planners. I'm the one who's the lead pastor of a church. But it makes sense. I mean, anybody who knows Cindy and who's worked, worked with her uh, knows that she's incredibly smart, gifted in all of these ways, not only from her corporate background, but her intuitive sense within uh, church ministry and so on and so forth. So it's an incredible honor that she gets to be a part of it. I get to play the supporting role. And so we're starting to think through ways in which, okay, you know, what, what is that going to mean? What, what's that going to look like for me as, a, as I'm a Mordecai to her Esther in, in that sense? Uh, we need to be willing to play the supporting role. Do you recognize the places where God might be calling you to be a support role, at least for a time, in your family, in the church, in your workplace? And then are you willing to humbly see the critical nature of, for you to be in that support role, uh, perhaps even over looking for another leading role somewhere else. That's Mordecai, the supporting role. Let's look now at Esther, who of course is the leading uh, role. Uh, how does Esther embrace her leading role? Well, at first, actually, it seems like she doesn't, right? I mean, Mordecai tells her what's happening and she's like, oh, don't you understand? You can't tell me to do these sorts of things. She, she kind of balks, she, she hesitates. But actually, what I think we see happening here is she's doing something quite important, even in her uh, beginning to embrace her leadership role here, and, and that is she's assessing the situation. Uh, look at verse 11. You know, uh, this is her response after, after Mordecai puts it all in front of her. It says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal province know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king, has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have gone by and I haven't gone into the king. I mean, it's no wonder that she at first balks and hesitates at what Mordecai was asking her to do. She's assessing the risk and the risk was Mordecai was asking her to risk everything. Not just her position as a queen and a life of luxury, but to risk her life. And by the way, it would mean her putting her life into the hands of a very insecure king who didn't have a great track record with queens and had literally just on a whim signed an edict to kill off an entire people group. She balks at first, she hesitates, but really she's assessing the situation. 
Then after Mordecai challenges, who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this, we see that she resolves to act. And not just in compliance with Mordecai's wishes so much, she makes it her own. And she instructs Mordecai to gather the people, to pray, to fast, which leads us to see that she also trusts the Lord. You know, she, she wants to first and foremost say, if I'm getting ready to do this, which I've decided I'm, I'm resolved to do, I need to start with asking God's help. Now, it's interesting. We've talked about this plenty of times throughout our series here in the book of Esther. God is never once mentioned in the book of Esther. But here it's clear for both Mordecai and Esther, their trust ultimately is in him. And before they gear up for something really big like this, they go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help, favor, and protection. Uh, I've been recently reading through the book of Exodus, just kind of on my own. And there was this one time that really, uh, one story, account of Moses, that really stuck out to me this, this time around, uh, that I think really kind of is, is along lines of what Esther's experiencing here. Uh, Moses was praying to God up on the hill. They're out in the wilderness. This is after God had, through Moses, delivered the people uh, out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And now they were, at this, they were in the wilderness. And God called Moses to take the people up out toward the promised land. And Moses comes back to God and says, essentially, oh God, we will go, but only if you go with us. In fact, he says it this way. He says, don't send us unless you go with us. In other words, if, if, you, if you're not with us, we're, we're cooked. And I just thought that was fascinating on so many fronts. I mean, for one thing, it shows, man, Moses had some great audacity to speak to the living God in such a way. And yet that's the point. God invites us to come to him in relationship, putting our trust in him because he is the one who is at work and calling us to play our role in it. Uh, Esther trusts God as she embraces her leading role. And then finally, we see here that she sacrifices uh, look at verse 16. She says to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews, fast for me. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. Esther is amazing. Talk about a strong woman. Here's what we see with these words. The king had selected Esther for her beauty, but God had chosen her for her character. We're not going to cover the rest of the story here. I encourage you to read ahead if you'd like. Um, you'll see that Esther, in the end, is absolutely brilliant in terms of how she sets up uh, Haman and traps him in front of the king and ultimately convinces the king to, to write another edict to defend the Jewish people. The people ultimately are saved. She's absolutely brilliant, even as she trusts the Lord. Here's the application of all of this, it seems to me. We need Esthers. The world needs Esthers, people who are willing to cast aside comfort, who understand their innate privilege and are willing to set aside reputation and risk power for the sake of loving others and joining God in his work to bring about redemption and the renewal of all things. One of the things that strikes me most about Esther, just amazes me about Esther, is she could have played the entitlement card here, right? I mean, what was her past? The elephant in the room is that she was a concubine. She was taken forcibly against her will, just to a life that she didn't ask for. 
And yet she doesn't have this major chip on her shoulder. I mean, you might think that she'd be upset with God at this point. How could God allow this to happen or, or have any other sort of, of feelings? And yet she goes, to, goes on to risk everything because she sees with Mordecai's help, wow, maybe God has set all of this up, allowed all of this happen, even the hard and the ugly for such a time as this. We need Esther's. The world needs Esther's. So the question is, do you see the place where you live, the place where you work, in light of an assignment that God has given you? Do you recognize your positions of influence that you've been given, whether it's innately that you just have, or that you've gained by privilege, or that you've gained by hard work, places of position and power that can be stewarded for God's kingdom and his work for the advancement of the gospel? Or, like most, are you most concerned about getting ahead, about preserving comfort, about keeping those around you as safe as possible? Acts 17 verse 26 says, From one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. That's saying God not only knows your story, he has written a story for you to be a part of his. To take this a step forward uh, further, God not only is not surprised by COVID-19, there, he has a unique plan in it for you and for me. But it seems to me if we're not careful, we can see all the events that are happening right now, shelter in place, and just like, oh, I just want things to get back to normal, and yet miss the fact that God might be calling us to something right here and right now for such a time as this. Look, COVID-19 is terrible. At worst, it means we've lost people we love. At worst, it means people are being put into harm's way. I'm thinking of you, frontline caregivers. Now, we need to be your Mordecai's as you are our Esther's. At best, COVID-19 is a nuisance. There's this, ugh, I just can't wait for things to get back to normal. Many of us are tired, but friends, let's not miss that God is still, nevertheless, always at work, and there may be things he wants to do now that he would otherwise not be doing during normal times. By way of inspiration, there's a friend, leader in Current, who's been working really hard the last many weeks, so much so that uh, they kind of fell off the grid a little bit. They were working on this product launch. We're just kind of reaching out. Are you okay? Everything okay? He's like, yeah, I'm just working. I got to work. I got It's long, hard, very stressful hours. I mean, just not seeing the, the light of day in terms of relationships. Uh, it turns out this product that they were working on was breast cancer treatment for people to take at home a timeline that got pushed up because of COVID-19. And I was just absolutely blown away by this work that they've been doing so hard, oh, so hard working for, that how they sacrificed. Uh, because, I mean, it's because of this hard work that they and their team have been doing precisely because of COVID-19 that I can't help but think many people are actually gonna have their lives saved as a result. Look, your calling and mine might not be as dramatic as that, but if it's helping to love, to serve, to care for others as God calls us to, it is absolutely critical work. You may have people in your life who would admit it or perhaps don't admit it or don't even recognize it who are in desperate need of connection who are in desperate need of a phone call or two every once in a while to hear some encouragement 
so that they can keep going. You may have some neighbors around you, next to you, who because of a health condition are especially vulnerable right now, cannot get out. Maybe they're feeling especially isolated that you can help serve and care for them in a loving way. You may have some coworkers right now who are struggling with, with the idea of hope, looking for hope but not finding it anywhere. And yet you know where true hope comes from and have ready access to a community and events that you can invite them into for, for life and, 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 and renewal. There's any number of ways that we can support or lead or care or love, any, other way, any number of ways that we can embrace the roles, the assignments that God has us for such a time as this. So the questions are, do you have the eyes to recognize where God might be calling you to a support role? Where he might be calling you to a lead role that he might have in front of you right now that you can step into even this afternoon? And will you act? Will you act even if it's at cost or risk to yourself? Look, these are big questions. And in some ways, we could, we could, we could respond. How could God call us to, to such a high calling? That's not so easy all the time. That can be incredibly hard. That can put it at risk. What gives him the right to call us into something like this? But you know what we see here in the story of Esther is it's pointing us to an infinitely greater story that we see in the Bible, the story of Jesus Christ. Because Esther is a wonderful inspiration. But in the end, that's what she is, a wonderful inspiration. There's power there. But Jesus Christ gives us the power to do all of the things we're talking about. What Esther points us to is the greater story of redemption in the Bible. You see, Mordecai was a supporting role. Uh, Esther was a leading lady. But God, in the great story, even their own, is the main actor at work. God didn't call Esther into anything that he himself wasn't willing to do, more so for her and for any one of us who would call on his name. Esther had a very important role in the history of saving her people, but the greatest role that she actually played was pointing to how God would come to save all people. For whereas Esther risked her life and and her place in the palace to save her people, Jesus Christ gave up his heavenly palace for all people. And whereas Esther risked her life saying, if I perish, I perish, Jesus Christ gave his life saying, when I perish, I perish. That's what the cross is all about. God wrote himself into our story, a story of rebellion against him, of pain, destruction, hurt. And you know what? He didn't write his son into, into the story as a great privileged nobleman, you know, into a palace and into a position of great influence and power and authority. No, he was born into a manger and into a, and into a, 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 a home of great poverty. And even before he was a toddler, he himself faced the threat of genocide. And even though he had a leading role in bringing about the salvation of the world, so much of his life and ministry, if you look at the stories and accounts of Jesus' life, he played the supporting role, just constantly stopping and caring, serving others around him. And when he did step towards the cross, ultimately to give his life, to play that leading role in a way that only he could do, his disciples, his main friends, the people who could step into and support him, in his only time of need, abandoned him. 
Why did he do all this? To save you and me from our sin, to die for sinners, to bring us back into a relationship with God, and to call us into this work with him, bringing about the redemption and renewal of all things. If you have never received Jesus as your Savior, you can today, recognizing that he died for your sins, that you can repent, that is, that is turn away from them, ask for forgiveness, and there's, there's, there is forgiveness, healing, and life to be had there, even as he offers you eternal life. You can receive him today. And then for those who have received him, you have a wonderful calling before you. It's a calling to join him in the greatest work of all, the joining him in the work of redemption and bringing about the renewal of all things, which of course is not gonna have in its, happen in its totality in this life. It will happen in the next life, but it's a calling here and now to work things that will be eternal and never fade. So in what ways might God be calling you to play a support role in all of this? You know what I'd encourage you to do? Maybe take some time later today with a piece of paper or a journal and just write out ways, people in which you might be able to step into a support role, helping them, caring for them, supporting them, pointing them towards the Lord. The reason why I say it might be good to take a paper or a journal to do that is we, it, this is a practice of opening our eyes. I think so often our, we're looking for leading roles, if anything. So take some time. What ways it might you, you be a support role? Because support role is often the most critical of all in which God is calling you to. And in what ways might God be calling you to play a leading role in his work and in his story? In what ways might you steward your positions of influence and power and opportunity to love, serve, and care for others, pointing them towards Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the stories of Esther and Mordecai how they just risked it all for the sake of loving and caring for others, trusting you in the midst of all of it. Thank you most of all for the story of Jesus, how you gave your life. You didn't just risk it, you gave your life. And not just to save a people, but to save all people who would call on your name. Thank you, Father. And thank you that you are not done, that you continue to work towards redeeming things, people, lives, relationships and that you call us into that work alongside you. Father, would you help us as a church, as individuals, as families, to see the roles that you call us to play for such a time as this. Help us to identify the support roles you call us to, help us to identify the leading roles, and help us to act and to act decisively with your help. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's continue this time of worship through song now.